Hi, I'm Dr. Mitch Harlan, and welcome to the Truth Talks Podcast. Today's story is amazing. This is Jeff Royer. Jeff, how are you? Doing well. We're going to open this up. The, your story is, uh, is not only an incredible adventure, uh, but so many ups, so many downs. But when we talk about ups and downs, this is a little bit different than most people experience. Up is getting the career that you've always wanted. The down was you end up in prison. It was a roller coaster. That's some up and down <laughs> right there. Down. I'm going to go ahead and open this up with, you know, you grew up here in Colorado. Uh, you, you joined the Marines. Uh, got your dream job as an FBI agent. And then you ended up in, in federal prison. Right. And then you're out and doing well. So this story ends well. But, man, this story is centered around a whole lot of stuff. And, and I always like... I don't actually do this a lot, but I'm going to preface it by saying a few things. Number one, I know more about you than perhaps even the FBI at this point, <laughs> right? And maybe not. But everything that I have read, I have yet to find anything that says, oh, man, this guy is completely guilty. As a matter of fact, in one of the articles in the Wall Street Journal, it was talking about um, they couldn't prove that, that even their, the, what they thought was a bribe was actually a bribe. Second thing we always find, we always tell everything is follow the money. Right. You didn't make a damn dime. Always. Never did. So if we're following the money, this doesn't add up. Right. This case stinks to high heaven. It brings in 9-11. And, and the first thing I would say is whenever you get convicted and you go to prison, everyone assumes that you're absolutely guilty. Right. So I'm going to ask you now, and I'm going to ask you at the end, mm -hmm. are you guilty of what you were charged for? Not a bit. Let's get into your story, man. This one, this one is absolutely one of the most shocking stories I, I, I've been around, and, and I'm anxious to get into it. So let's start. We already know you're from Colorado. Let's, let's start with the, the getting into the Marines. So it was uh, graduated with a business degree. Now, Fort Lewis, so I was on the Western Slope, grew up Western Slope, went to school in the Western Slope, uh, Fort Lewis College business degree, and uh, <laughs> what pushed me there was a, a party was having a graduation party and my buddies were so excited to graduate in the business class with me and they said um, one guy was so excited because he had just went down and got the assistant manager job at jc penny that's what his four years got him yeah and i remember the whole i said nah this is <laughs> nope so i i got in my car during the party and drove down to the fbi office they have a two-man resident agency there in durango and talked to an agent there and I said, all right, what do I need to do? I'm ready. Got my degree. Can we ship out tomorrow type thing? And he said, no, there's specialty programs that they have where you can go straight in. But then there's also just the basic program where if you have just a regular college degree, then you have to have three years work experience. I said, what kind of work experience? He said, probably better law enforcement or military. So that summer, that was in April, May timeframe, uh, over the course of the summer, uh, tried some odd jobs and said, all right, I need to make that leap. Went down to the uh, Navy recruiter, wanted to be a SEAL, and found out she had to swim. So that threw that off the table. I was walking out of the, the Navy office, and the Marine recruiter reached out of his door and grabbed me, said, sit down. He was listening to the whole thing. So I signed the papers that day and, and called my folks and said, guess what I just did? So I spent five years um, in the Marines as an officer, because I had my degree, went through officer candidate school. Yep. And then that prepared me. I always had the eye to apply for the FBI, but I needed that three years, ended up to be five. 
great time. Five years in the Marine Corps. It was awesome. And then then started the application process with the Bureau. And that was, that was your dream? Always had been. Always had been. And again, come from a small town, that's like a career, it's like super cool. Well, it is. You grow up, and uh, I, always, I always say it, and I always will. To this day, when I look in the mirror, I'm wearing the white hat. Um, I got no reason to lie. I've got no, no bone to, to, or no axe to grind, no bone pick. I, I've got nothing that's other than just truth. That's why I'm glad I'm here. But the way I looked in the mirror back then was no different now. When I was little, I was the Lone Ranger. You know, I wore the white hat. I, when we were playing Cowboys and Indians, I was the Cowboy. Cops and robber, I was the cop. So I always knew I wanted to do something, firefighter, police officer. As I got older and a little bit more focused, I said, well, if you're going to do this, then why not do this? And if the FBI is the best uh, agency out there, give it a shot. So I did apply with Secret Service, CIA, U.S. Marshals, and the FBI. U.S. Marshals and the FBI were the two that got back to me. Uh, FBI paid a little bit better, so I filled out that application, but I was approved by the marshals or accepted by the marshals and the FBI for the preliminaries, and then I just I went to the FBI route. Too bad if you'd went to the marshals. We, we may not even be sitting here telling the right. story right now. No. <laughs> That's right. And, and for, I was on the very first assignment I had. I was on the U.S. Marshals uh, Fugitive Task Force for a year. That was awesome. And so it, working with those guys, I mean, I'm, I'm in that. So the dream job was the dream. When, when you're doing that, um, you know, coming from the energetic Marine background, kind of thrown in there to, to that side, working on the violent crime side, uh, it, was, it was great. I Wh- which is where your FBI uh, career started. Right. You were in the crime division. The violent crime section. Violent crime. And how long did that go for? The way new agents usually work, unless you, like I said, unless you have a specialized talent, you, they try and get you your first three to five years to, to hit everything in the office. So you work a year in violent crimes, you work a year in... Uh, maybe in uh, the white collar unit, drugs, um, they'll they'll move you around, and then wherever you find your niche or, or you're good at, or they need help, then that's usually where you you end up. So I was immediately on the violent crime squad um, on my first entry, and then they moved me over to about a year, year and a half into the white collar squad. And that's where I met Tony Elgindi and that's where this all started. Right. This is, this is where the story <laughs> starts to get real dang good. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions here. Things I wrote down. I don't want to forget. Um, did you ever witness any cover-ups when you were in the FBI? I did. I did. They were smaller. Um, and when you say cover up, it's nothing extremely nefarious. It's more to cover the bureau's ass. We were taught in the academy, what what stages our loyalty was at, um, what, what the phases of our loyalty were. I come from the Marine Corps that was God, country, and Corps in, in that order. Um, mission accomplishment, welfare of the Marines. So you had your hierarchy, but it was always for the, the good um, of individuals. <laughs> the Bureau taught us in our ethics class at the Academy, you have three loyalties. First one is to the FBI. Your second one is to the FBI. And then if you get to the third one, it's also to the FBI. So when I saw stuff happen out in the field, um, take like the Winho Lee case and the Albuquerque division, it wasn't so much that they were trying to cover something up, maybe illegally or criminally, but they covered their ass because they had screwed up and the public wasn't to know. It was a taste of uh, bureaucracy 101 and yeah, nobody was allowed to to tell the truth, nobody's allowed to come. So the fidelity, bravery, integrity, a little bit, uh, 
a little bit tainted at that point in time. But little stuff like that. Well, if they knew what really went on, people would say, that's the Bureau. You know, I thought this was cutting edge. Well, it's the cutting edge of a butter knife. It's, it's, it, there's some things go on. It's like, yeesh. I also wonder in your case, which we're going to dive really in deep into, but in your case, back then you were assumed guilty because the FBI said so. Right. If you're having the same trial now, I don't think we're getting the same thing. We're not going to trial. That's what, that's what I see. Right. And I mean, again, after everything I've read, it just, this just blows me away how we ended up where we get, where we ended up. Even if we would have had a change of venue back then and got it out of the New York office, it wouldn't have went to trial. It never would have. Been. The, the, the magistrate that I went before in Albuquerque, which is funny, I was in that division. I had taken cases before him. He knew who I was. He's like, I don't see a, a blemish on this guy's record, and you want him in jail for you know blah, blah, blah. No, not happening. And he looked at the charges, and he said, this is pushing it. This is crazy. So I know, because Tony was in California, Derek was in Oklahoma City, I was in Albuquerque. <clears throat> if it would have went to the right venue, because that's where supposedly this crime happened, instead of bringing us back to the New York office, never would have went anywhere. Well, let's start with that. So you get um, you you're you're getting into the white collar crime, right? And let's just start there. Let's start the story there. I started working. The White Collar Squad, the same way I worked the Fugitive Squad, we need informants. So the FBI is very reactive. The FBI does things only when people report them, only, you know, the only proactive stuff we have is some undercover issues with our agents in uh, certain, certain areas, drugs, gangs, stuff like that. But everything else is just reactive. We get a tip or we find something out and then we go and, and interview. It's just very uh, vanilla. You can't do that in a violent crime squad because you want to try and get in get your informants in. So I was working five different informants. I was a young agent, thought that's what we were supposed to be doing, come from the Marine Corps. I was, I was pissing vinegar, right? I was yeah. ready, ready to go. Not a problem in the world admitting. I was, I won't say arrogant, but I was cocky. I was confident. I was, I thought I was doing my job. But when I got transferred to the White Collar Squad, I thought, okay, well, let's just, I mean, that's way vanilla and that's way boring. That's crazy stupid. And let's jazz it up a little bit because here's a different way to do it. We're, we're, finding all this fraud, but it's after mom and pop get screwed out of the money. It's out after companies get screwed out of their money. So let's maybe try and work a uh, an infiltration, a, a, an undercover type of uh, investigation on some of these, o only in a bigger sense. So I immediately moved over to the securities fraud, and I was working an informant in Oklahoma City, Derek Cleveland, he was in there uh, in the papers, he was, he was helping me with reports. So I didn't have the knowledge to look through somebody's 10K or, or anything else in the securities briefings that, or documents that they had, so he would help me. So that was his level of informant. I was telling him about this proactive, and, cause he, and he completely agreed. He said, you need to get somebody who knows somebody so you can see this stuff happening before so mom and pop doesn't lose or don't lose their money. They, they, we can get this thing stopped before it happens. Sounded perfect. He said, I've got somebody you need to meet. His name's Tony Algindi. He works in San Diego. Here's who he was. Um, he was in on the bad side. He's a convicted felon. He had a fraud case uh, against him. But you need to talk to him. But so, the FBI is what is who hooked you up with this crew of people. You're you're after this white collar. Right. We have an informant program. Mm -hmm. And and this this was brought up in my case. I said, well, you didn't have Tony Algindi on paper. I said, the hell I didn't. 
my supervisor knew, everybody knew. What I couldn't do technically was put him on paper. And the only reason for that is I'm in Oklahoma City and he's in San Diego. We could only put someone on our payroll or our, you know, informant program who was in our district. So the second part of that is informant. If you're my informant, you and I develop a relationship. We may go drink beers. We may go um, have deep conversations. I need to get to know you. You need to trust me. You're not trusting this other agent, even though I'm working with him, even my partner, you're not trusting him. This is the relationship that happens. And I got that relationship developed with Tony. So even though he's in San Diego, I couldn't put him on my Oklahoma City informant file, but he was providing me information. It's called, uh, one's a CI, confidential informant, and that is the paperwork that you fill out. The other one is, is called a source of information. So you can work people outside your jurisdiction, but it's, it's uh, a different type of paperwork. You still pay them, still do what you need to do, but it's a different category. That's what Tony was. But why Tony Algendi? Who, who sent him? Tony was good. So what he had, um, what I recognized immediately was a talent uh, probably the smartest guy I've ever seen work Wall Street. He's on CNBC. He did commentary, uh, commentary a lot of uh, securities-related uh, programs. He was at one point in time the most uh, viewed person on the Internet. And he had a website of about 300 people, um, members, and I think he kept it to that point on purpose just because, you know, for control. But he had millions of people out there that were subscribing to his, to his uh, reports and investigations. Coming out of the what I saw him and the relationship I established with him was he created a personality for himself based on his past. He's been in there. If you're familiar with the movie Boiler Room and Blinded Robinson, all those bad Wolf of Wall Street, you know, he was in with those people. He knew those people. He pulled himself out and said, I found a better way to make money. Tony was all about money. I'm no, no sugarcoating that. But I'm now going to use my contacts back here, and I'm going to start bashing these bad companies and stop them before they start. So in my mindset of what I wanted to do, here's a guy who was already doing it. This is a perfect relationship. And how did you know about him? You just knew about him because he's famous? Or? Derek introduced me to him. Okay. So as soon as Derek introduced me to him and I saw a bigger picture develop, Derek went off my rules. I like Derek. Derek was a great guy. We went to football games and everything. I, I developed, I, I, I got along great with all my informants. I mean, they were doing me. I was paying them. Uh, they were doing me the favor of, of working for me and trusting me. So it was, it was all good. Of course, the FBI knew about all of them. Of course. It was all documented. That's when Tony and I kicked off Derek to the side. And Derek and Tony were friends still. So it was kind of the, a three-way friendship. And this all, that's how this then started. Over the course of the next two years, Tony Algendi opened 38 cases for the FBI, the Oklahoma Department of Securities, the Texas um, Rangers, uh, Texas Department of Securities, and the SEC out of the Fort Worth office. If, if you compare that time frame to the number of cases open, probably the number one informant in the Bureau. And remember, I'm only... I'm not even three years into the Bureau yet. Yeah. So I'm, in my mind, again, rock star in it saying, hey, I'm, this is what I thought the Bureau was all about. We're, we're, uh, this is the cutting edge, right? We're, we're in, we're messing it up. Well, that turned around to bite me in the butt because now, unless you're in some of those positions, unless you're just sitting around the water cooler, doing an interview in the morning, taking your two-hour lunch, having an interview in the afternoon, and leaving at 4 o'clock, uh, we got paid for 50 hours, um, so automatic 10% overtime. I was turning in 84-hour paychecks. So, or time, time cards. 
So I was working 34 hours a week over a long period of time for free, just because I was liking it. That's the way it did. My informants came out at night. We were doing the things at night that we were supposed to be doing. There's a guy in, new, uh, in the New Jersey office who was doing what I wanted to do. So I was looking at a lot of his files on, on there's, there's compartmentalization. Things in our, our computer system are top secret. And then there's top secret need to know. I got JFK. I wanted to know who shot him. So I got in JFK. And I said, no, you don't need to know. <laughs> you don't need to know that. I'd like to know that. Yeah. So that, that started the process of Tony and I's relationship. I was trying to put this paperwork together. Then 9-11 happens. Well, were you, were you looking for specific cases with Tony? Mm-hmm. So you, you were actually, you actually were working cases with Tony for the FBI. Right. Of right. which multiple and, people know. Right. And that's important um, because if, if he found something, he'd call me up and say, hey, you've got something going down in Boca Raton, Florida. Well, I can't work something. I'm in Oklahoma City or in Albuquerque, wherever I was. So I then would say, what do you got? He would say, you need to look at a company called XYZ. I said, all right. I look on XYZ on the computer. See, all right, I see XYZ. I need to know about John Smith, Bill Smith. I need CFO, CEO, COO. I need to know all their financials. I, I put a little package. I called it my package. Then I would call the, because of my relationship with Tony, and then I would call the Boca Raton agent. There's an agent down there working it, or Nevada or whoever that he would give me the information on. And I would say, this is me. I'm in the Oklahoma City office. I've got an informant, source of information out in, in uh San Diego, named Tony Elgindi. He's got some information of a scam going on down in Boca Raton or down in your area. Here's the information. I'm going to marry you two up. Here's his phone number. He's expecting a call. If you want to, if you do open this, get a hold of him and work him directly. I don't like the three-way going mm-hmm. through. I was the marriage counselor. Those two were the bride and groom. That's the way I looked at it. Now, if it was in my jurisdiction, not a lot of stock fraud going on in Oklahoma City. But there were all around the world. So I had probably the most intelligent and connected informant for the securities type of work in the Bureau. I'm maintaining that relationship and then just passing his information on to other people. And that ultimately got me jammed up because they saw these computer checks going on and all the phone calls going back and forth with Tony and I. And that that kind of started the whole thing in conjunction with Post 9-11. Post 9-11. Yeah. So this is where it starts to get juicy, right? right? So I haven't looked him up or researched him. I mean, you know, this he had some what I would call smaller stuff uh, mm-hmm. that they got him. But when you're investigating, investigating him or using him as the informant, was the FBI looking at him for anything at that point? At that point in time, when I was with him? Mm-hmm. No. He had, he had some of the companies. So you're, you're bad company. And we start putting pressure on you. And this is kind of the rub. So Tony says, hey, there's a company out in Nevada. I open a case, or the Nevada agent opens a case, or the Booker Tony opens a case, whatever. He, it's kind of the crux of the case. Tony at that point in time, or the post-9-11 case, Tony knows that there's an FBI investigation on this because I either opened it or somebody else did. There's no law, no policy, no nothing that Tony Elgini can't short that company. He can short sell that company immediately if he wants to, or if the investigation doesn't go anywhere, he's going to lose his butt, so maybe he'll wait. But at least he has that option. People, He wasn't the only one that asked me because I was, I was investigating other companies. I'd do an interview with somebody. One of them was a Heisman Trophy winner from Oklahoma City, uh, from OU, that was involved in a, a scam. And as I was doing an interview with him. He said, 
he stood up after the interview, shook my hand, he goes, so can I go short this? And I said, I can't tell you not to. And I couldn't. That was the deal. So it was no different for, for Tony doing it. He was in a great position. He could go out on his website, say, hey, I'm, I've got the FBI, and I know this, and I know that. They would short the stock. I'm working the case, or this guy's working the case, or I don't even know about it. It's just happening over here. But the company gets shut down, stops scamming mom and pop. Tony makes money. Of course he makes money. And it was the fact that he was in possession of confidential information. Well, he was my informant. Of course he does. You know, if I go out and want to uh, open a case on this gang, I'll go to the other gang, the rival gang, and get information on this gang. Well, this gang knows that if I put this gang out of business, they're going to take over that territory. I just helped this gang, but I took this gang out. So it's, it, <laughs> where do you, right. where do you, the only difference is, uh, or the only thing I wouldn't have done then, not tell Tony, wouldn't have got the information. This company would have still kept being bad, doing the things that they were doing. So I either had to do it or I didn't do it. Then I'm not working the securities fraud. So I'm kind of in that yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And right now is exactly where I want to bring up this short sale thing. Uh, I looked into it. Um, it's confusing as all hell. And, and then I'm going to circle that back around when we get to the trial, because I, I think that in some of the stuff I've read in there, I mean, if you've got a jury of peers, yeah. and, and uh, this short sailing thing is a little bit complicated, a right. little bit confusing. So no, that's a good can, point. for our listener, can you tell us about what short sailing actually is? In a real quick nutshell, the... There's two ways you can make money on Wall Street, and it doesn't matter if it's cryptocurrency, uh, Forex, or stocks, equities market. You can buy something low and sell it high and pocket that difference, or you can sell it first. You can sell it, and basically you're borrowing the shares. You can short sell that stock, hoping that it goes down, and then buy it at a lower price, and you pocket the difference that way. Obviously, the, no different than if you buy low, sell high. If the thing starts going down, you lose the money from when you bought it to where it goes down. Same thing with shorting. If you short it thinking it's going to go down and it starts to rise up on you, you'll lose the difference that way. Yeah, but it, it, that's a good nutshell, but it's a little bit more complicated. It's, it is than more that. complicated than that. And, and back to what you're saying about the jury, ultimately, it takes, a, I don't say a special kind of person, but if you would have set 12 people who were in the, you know, the jury of my peers, who knew what was going on, they would just laugh at the government. They said, this crap goes on every day. There's right. nothing wrong with this. And that's important because short selling is not illegal. Right, right. And so, what Tony was doing, some of the stuff, is the difference between blackmail and greenmail. They tried to make it look like blackmail that he called this company and said, if you give me this much stock, I'll get my short position off you. And what happened was that company called, saw the short position and said, Tony, I was on the phone call. I listened to it. I said, Tony... If you get your short position off, I'll give you this much. Don't even reach out. And it's, it's the difference. And it's called green mail. It happens, oh, my gosh, every day. We, one of our, it was Tony's informant, but I ended up meeting her. She worked for the Wall Street Journal and, and wrote on securities investigations. She was sat through the whole trial in the audience with me. I said, Jeff, you're getting so screwed here. But she came up afterwards. She goes, what are they talking about? That, what they just mentioned, it was a big thing on green mail. She said, that happens Every day, hundreds of times. That's what companies do. It does unless there's a 9-11 event. Ah, there you go. <laughs> so, man, mm. this is where it gets juicy, right? And I'm telling you right now, I'll ask you this, maybe even again. If there's no 9-11, do you, do you go to prison? That wouldn't even be a case. I would have got, you know, sat down in my office and said, hey, 
do better paperwork. Hey, what's going on here? They knew what I was doing. They let me do it for two years. I had my paperwork in there. I mean, there's 22 people in the Bureau who could have testified for me, but they were warned via a friend of mine who told me this afterwards. He said, we were told that if we testify for you, we'll either be transferred or fired. All right, let's not get too excited because I'm bringing that up on the trial. <laughs> so, I want to know, you get a phone call on September yeah. 11th from Tony Algendi, the, who, the, by the way, is from Middle Eastern descent. He's Egyptian. He's Egyptian, yep. And um, now that we've laid that out there, tell me about this one. Yeah, it was a hard profile. And it wasn't just Tony that was profiled. That just happened to be the case that he was associated with. But we were getting leads into our central system that were kicked out that, you know, we went out and told everybody, hey, if you know anything about 9-11, send it back. Hundreds of thousands of leads. I, I worked one personally that was, hey, the guy down at the 7-Eleven on the corner of walk and don't walk is Pakistani. He may have known something about 9-11, so I have to go down there to close that lead out and say, hey, buddy, did you know anything about 9-11? Okay, thanks. But that's what it was. Tony, a tip came in, said, hey, this Tony Algindi was talking about 9-11 on his website. He's Egyptian, so he must have known. And oh, by the way, he liquidated one of his accounts. I said, all right, they... they you know, I looked at it. I looked at the, the lead. Did he liquidate it right before 9-11? September 10th. And it was a $300,000 education account for his three kids. So in September, October, notoriously, at the time the market uh, that goes down, takes a reset, whatever. Tony was very, very good at what he did. He traded a half million dollar account. And as soon as, and he just didn't, um, on the actual trading. And he didn't do any more because it's kind of hard to start managing that. So every time... And it could have been a week. Sometimes he doubled his account in a week. He was just very good. So as soon as he got another hunt, uh, half a million, he would funnel it off to a bank, funnel it off to a bank. So a $300,000 account that had been sitting in there for a couple of years just wasn't performing. I mean, Tony's used to making that percentage in his trading account, but he just had to set aside and it's making you know, 8% a year or something. He was just frustrated. And I, again, listened to the conversation we had with his, his uh, after the fact because he recorded it. He just said, you know, I'm going to shut my account down. It takes three days for uh, an account to settle at the brokerage. Had he known about 9-11, which is what they accused him of, he would have closed that account plus his trading account. Actually, what he would have done is closed that account on September 7th, knowing it had to settle before the 11th, and he would have went short every New York real estate trust, every airlines, which were shorted, which was what he called me about. He would have shorted anything to do with 9-11. Not a single trade went off in his accounts related to 9-11, except on September 10th, he tried to liquidate. So that means if he knows something that big is going to happen, they would have shut down Wall Street, which they did, and he wouldn't have got his account liquidated. So it was a stupid thing. So when I see that, after working securities fraud for a couple of years, I'm like, and? How many other people go across the United States? How many other people shut down accounts on September 10th? You going to indict every one of them? But that was... uh that was also kind of the, the tip, though, that, that brought Algendi into yeah. this play, though, right? Yeah. Oh, oh, my gosh. We got somebody who liquidated. And 300000 is not a, a, a small account, but he's Middle Eastern. And that's what the Wall Street Journal even wrote. They put him in there. He was Middle Eastern because that's what the U.S. attorney yeah, said. Yeah, exactly what it said. Middle Eastern, and he shut down an account. So, therefore, those two things, therefore, the big therefore, he must have had pre-knowledge. And if he had pre-knowledge... Ooh, look at this FBI handler of his. He must have had pre-knowledge. So they're going to uh, <laughs> indict me for terrorism. So let's let's go into the call. He calls you personally and says, "On it was the afternoon, uh, just afternoon on on September 11th, and he says, 
did you see what happened? And we're, we're busy. Even out, I was working in the, on the Indian reservation out in, in, um, in Gallup, New Mexico. And he called me and said, did you see what happened in the market yesterday at 3.30? Half hour before. So I looked and there was just a massive short sell. It had been happening for a few weeks prior to this in smaller increments, but 30 minutes prior, massive, huge. I said, he said, look at those, look at which ones those are. And it was all airlines and it was all New York real estate trusts, billions of dollars. There's a massive short sell. And he just, it, I, I remember the, the statement he made straight up. He said, find out whose accounts those are and you'll find out who knew about 9-11. Now, now, your background, your history, your knowledge of this stuff, because you've been doing it a while, mm -hmm. is there any way that that's coincidental? The, the sales? Yeah. No. Not that big. Not that big. Not that big. Everybody, you know, if it was an earnings report that was coming out on a Friday and they shorted some because they thought they were going to miss on Thursday, somebody would have taken a small short or something like that. Not this amount. Not big. This was, this was massive. This is where it gets. This is where it gets interesting. Yeah. So I, at, obviously, that's the afternoon of 9/11. We had a call it our SIOC, our incident operation, special incident operation center out in New York had been set up, um, ground zero working. So I get a hold of the guy who's running it out there. I won't say his name, but um, I say, John, this is Jeff out in the Indian Reservation. I've been working an informant. I said, Have you guys heard anything about a sell-off in the stock market yesterday and all the leads you're getting out there? He said, No. Tell me about it. Uh, I said, first of all, do you know what short selling is? He said, yeah, absolutely. What do you got? And I said, can I send you something? So I faxed the information over to him. He called me back 10 minutes later. He says, holy crap, is this for real? And I said, it's for real. He said, tell me a little bit more about your informant. So I told him background. He said, this is good stuff. I got to get, um, he's going to pass it on. We have a CIA liaison. He passed it over to the, our CIA liaison so they could talk. In case those were offshore accounts or something, we needed to get the CIA involved. And I asked him straight up, I said, John, did, have you ever heard of this information before? He said, this is the first I've heard about it. And he was in the main central computer system, right? He was the one punching leads out of the op center. He said, he said this, this, this is the first we've heard about it. So, not, not to throw you off, do you believe that statement? Miss the FBI. Yeah, at that point in time, yes. Because, okay. I, again, um, a lot of people get, bamboozled of what we see on TV, those, you know, the big centers where everybody's got moving screens. Uh, we were sharing computers. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't do my report if my partner wanted to do his report because we were sharing the screen. I mean, it was stupid. So, yes, I believed it. And, again, we're reactive and not proactive. So had they thought that that was a, a, a method of funding? Now, I, I won't go far to say that these people made money to fund Whoever made the money knew what was going to happen. So, of course, that was part of it. Somebody got paid off, right? So I and then called a guy that I'd worked with at the headquarters in the SEC in D.C. And uh, when I was in Oklahoma City, a couple of my cases had, had uh, morphed into the point where I needed some bigger help. And so I had talked to one of the supervisors out in the D.C. office. I called him. had a great relationship with him. Wasn't there on the afternoon of the 11th. So I called back the morning of the 12th. And I said, hey, Rob, same, same story. I said, can I, he, I didn't need to send him the information because he had the SEC computers. I said, pull this up. And I stayed on the phone with him. I said, look what happened at 3.30 yesterday. And same, same kind of reaction, holy crap, to that effect. 
he said, and he knew that I was working with Tony because of some of my other cases. He said, did El Jindy give you this? And I said, yeah, he did. He said, tell him and his boys, meaning his website, damn good job. So the same question asked to him, did, is this the first time the SEC is hearing about this? And he went through there and he said, there's nothing on here about this. He said, I need to get this out to someone. So now FBI, CIA, and SEC all know about it. In my mind, on an Indian reservation in the middle of nowhere, just of a relationship that I cultivated with Tony Algindi, I'm a rock star, right? I'm thinking, I'm not going to be doing anything, which changed later. I'm not going to be doing anything relation to it uh, directly, but I may have found just a big piece of the puzzle. I expected a phone call in the next hour. I expected a phone call every hour on the hour from somebody way up, director, saying, we need to get your informant in here. We need to have him go through some of this stuff. Something. Something never happened. Never happened. To the to the extent, and this was brought up in my trial, I was I was after a month I was checking the computers. Actually, two weeks later, I went out with a team of investigators to work the Pentagon site, and we worked it for two two weeks. So it was a month time frame. Those two, and then those two working weeks came back again. Every minute, I'm thinking, you know, am I going to get the call? Going to get the call? Somebody wants to know or needs to know something. So then I started thinking, what the heck? Even the Bureau's not this slow. And I started checking the computer, checking Tony Algindi, checking all these other companies, checking everything, and there was nothing. Which, by the way, came back to haunt a little bit. Yeah, it did. Big time, actually. Big time. Um, that was the basis of my obstruction of justice charge, which they knew about because I told them about it. Um, but I was just a little bit confused. I was like, what the heck? Why... Why isn't this being looked at? Because what I expected was something breaking. Because what my information did with Tony Algindi, it started something called the Capital Markets Task Force. Our information started that task force, which was the task force that turned around and ultimately indicted us, the one that we set up. It's just a stupid irony of stupid ironies. But I, I don't hold it past the government. But at this point, I'm like, are you kidding me? Because I had already talked to the prosecutor. I told the prosecutor what we were doing. I, they sent agents out to interview me in at the on the reservation, and I told them exactly what was going on. There was no secrets. There was no nothing. They well, had. They my, knew that you were investigating out Jindy. They knew that you were working with out Jindy right. to close these cases. They knew everything that happened. Yeah, all the after computers. After the phone call, you told them. Right. They, they knew about the phone calls. They knew about you know my my computers password and encrypted. That I'm not hiding it. I'm going in and using these. <laughs> like trying to set up some nefarious computer system to check all this stuff. So everything's on the up and up. And I wanted to, the judge wouldn't let me say it. He didn't like me much anyway. But it's what kind of criminal calls the prosecutor and sets that, oh, you're just creating an alibi. I said, seriously? Um, and I don't know if you want to bring this up too about the, the bribery, but it's a good time. They, they really tried to hammer me with this money. Well, you did it because of the quid pro quo and the fraud statutes saying Derek Cleveland gave you $30,000. Well, it turns out they indicted me seven days before they got my, they only had his bank records, not mine. Had they waited seven days, they see that this is, remember Derek and I's relationship, it kind of morphed into just a friendship. He was a, a day trader. So I gave him some money. I gave him $30,000 over the course of a, year or whatever, and he was just trading it. Every little bit that he could make, he would funnel off for me, um, like an investment, financial advisor, whatever you want to call it. So I gave him 30000 They got his records, 
and it showed 30,000 coming to me. Well, there's the bribe. There's the basis for the bribery. And that was actually when we interviewed the jury later, when we actually were able to show them my records, they're like, ah, the aha moment. And the judge even asked Derek, did you give Royer any money? Nope. Do you know that El Jindy gave him any money? He said, nope. Yeah, there, it's not in the records anywhere. Yeah. It's not in the records anywhere. Because it didn't happen. Because it doesn't exist, right. which is what's really fascinating. Tell me about the moment that you get arrested, though. You're, you get out of the, you get done with the Pentagon, which I got to ask because I'm a conspiracy theorist. Was there an airplane at the Pentagon? <laughs> an airplane did not hit the Pentagon. I don't think so either. That's, no. I thank you for confirming that. <laughs> now it just freaks me out even more because I got all kinds of that. But we're not going to get into that. So tell me, about, tell me about the moment that you get arrested. Uh, my buddy's on the SWAT team. And I'm in an office, going to have lunch with a, a, a friend of mine there at a, at a kind of strip mall business area in Albuquerque. Um, the lady that I'm dating, as she's an agent at the time, who was wrapped into this case, her and I had, had plans for the future, and we had a, a meeting with a real estate agent in Denver because I had put in two hardship transfers to get back to the Denver division, and they denied both of them. So I said, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving the Bureau. She was going to leave the following July when her time ran out and we were going to set up shop and, and live next to my kids and start that kind of life. And I was going to do, you know, things that I'd learned in the bureau out on the, in the, as a private investigator out on the outside. So I came back from, uh, San Diego, stopped in Albuquerque and I had lunch with a buddy of mine. Well, that morning I was standing up against the plate glass window watching and here comes a SWAT team. I was like, Oh, that's cool. There's John. There's um, they're going to go bust somebody. I'll watch this. It's kind of cool. Nope. Came in, cuffed and stuffed me. And the second thought that ran through my mind was, okay, it's not my birthday. It's not. Maybe it's Dennis's birthday. I don't know. This is a gag. You know, they're never. And then I heard what they started telling me. You know, you go right to me. So I said, what the hell is this all about? And just I got a quick. This is about you and El Jindy or something. I was like. So on the, in the back of the car, and I went and spent the night in county jail that night, waiting for my arraignment. I was like, what it, What about it? I told them all I need, know. What more do they want or what more do they see? So as it turned out, they arrested Tony and Derek and myself all at the same time. The Went down to the, the Albuquerque office, did the perp walk. They perped me around the, the office in front of all the people I worked with so they could they could get the FBI perp walk going. Took me in the interrogation room. The prosecutor from New York flew out to, do, to conduct the interview. That's never happened. U.S. attorneys don't even conduct interviews in their jurisdiction. That's what the investigators do, and then we present the evidence to the DOJ. That's the way it works. He flew all the way out there because he had the crime of the century, right? I'm a rogue agent who knew about 9-11. He has his career case. That went south real quick. So he and I, yeah, he's a little weasel. He, he didn't, uh, we didn't see eye to eye from the beginning. And I was like, are you kidding me, Ken? I told you what I was doing. Right. You lay the 302s down for Derek, Tony, and I on that day. And they're all, remember, they, they were arrested at the same time. They're identical interviews. Here's the way Jeff interacted. Here's the way we interacted. Here's what we were doing. None of which is a crime. You don't have to like it. You don't have to like my relationship with Tony. And I told the jury that. I said, if you think I was too cuddly, cozy, whatever. On a side note, that, that uh, <laughs> the, again, the stupid ironies. 
there was a FBI agent that we were going to get to testify for him because remember nobody in the FBI. I just needed somebody to say that's this is a normal working relationship. I'll work a banker as a white collar informant different than I'll work a drug dealer informant. That's what I am trained to do. This is what we do. There was an FBI agent who got out and was a private investigator in New York. He was going to testify because nobody in the bureau would testify for me. I'm out there dangling all alone, nobody to corroborate my story. He was going to do it. The day before the trial, uh, he calls my attorney and says, no can do. As a private investigator, he was getting his information to help him as a PI through a buddy of his still in the FBI. So all the computer checks that this guy was doing and sending him the information to help his investigation, confidential information. He said, if I testify for you, I give up all my confidential information and that's my job. So I can't do it either. So I was, my attorney, I remember the call, he said, we're screwed. He said, there's nobody testifying for you. And well, I think it's important to know too that they, so even though you were in New Mexico and Oklahoma City, or whatever, they got this trial in New York. Right. Was that to pin something on 9-11 so that they could say, hey, we at least got somebody for something? At the very end of my interview, the, the U.S. attorney was furious. He was, he was furious because he had flown all the way out there. And what I was repeatedly telling him for hours during the interrogation was, and the door didn't close fast enough one time with some of the agents that were coming in and out because they were coming in on the phones. He's saying this, Tony's saying this, Derek and So they're coordinating their interviews. It's what we do sometimes. And I heard one of them as we walked out the door say, they're all saying the same thing. I don't think this is what they thought it was. I heard plain as day, plain as day. So U.S. Attorney realized, I think, at that point in time, he didn't have squat. So he blew up at me and, again, etched into my brain. He says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to sit you in front of a New York jury, and I'm going to tell them you're a rogue agent who had pre-knowledge with a Middle Eastern he even profiled Tony, and you knew it all prior to 9-11. Basically, you're going to sit in front of a New York jury as a traitor. He used the word traitor, and then he left. <laughs> so that was my aha moment. Said They're not going to let this go. They got way too much invested in this. They'll have a liability. Nothing what they said happened actually happened, but I'm screwed. And, and I mean, obviously, at that point, now, now it becomes real. Yeah, we, we filed for the venue. We knew what was going to happen. The jury of the peers wasn't going to happen. They took a couple grandmas, a young kid, people who don't even know what short selling is all about, let alone fraud, let alone terrorism, let alone anything. And obviously, it's people who think the government never does anything wrong. Yeah, like I said, I think if we're at a different time, if that's going on right now, yeah. that's a whole different ball. Game. At least you could make that argument Yeah, to say, hey, the agents and the uh, staff, a lot of clerical, it's like any other government agency. There's a lot of good people working, but there's also a lot of dead weight. And the majority of that dead weight is at the supervisor and above level. And that's where crap gets covered up. Now, we have to get out of kind of, there's this, there's this kind of segment in there that it, the puzzle never fit for me anyway. But when you get out of the FBI, you go and you talk with Tony Elgin. Mm -hmm. And he is, you're learning from him, but you, you, you did not work for Tony Algendi? Right. He, and was this prior to the trial? Uh, yes. Yes. Okay. That, so I, I had, like I said, put in for those two hardship transfers, and I had to make a choice. I'm either going to be a father and get back to my kids in Denver because the Bureau's not going to transfer me there or give up my dream job 
which I did. I mean, the day I laid my gun and badge on the supervisor's desk to leave was arguably one of the worst days of my life, sometimes harder than prison, because that was what I worked for. And I was a good agent, I thought. I was doing things right. Like me or, or hate me, I was doing what I thought was right, trying to you know fight crime. Gave it up. That, so in September, I went out and worked Pentagon, did all that follow-up, but then Christmas time was, I said, enough's enough. Tony called me and said, and this came up in the trial later because part of the quid pro quo section of the fraud statutes say that I don't have to have, the quid pro quo didn't have to be a tangible get, it can be an offer of a benefit. So he offered me a job and because I'm leaving the bureau, which was kind of funny, I was telling the jury too, I said, this whole big thing where they're paying me tons of money to you know, this whole $30,000, what kind of criminal works for 30 grand, right? <laughs> and Tony's making millions of dollars, but I'm getting paid 30 grand over two years. Ooh, that's a crime of the century. He offered me the job, said, when you get out then, do you want to come work for me in San Diego? I said, no, I'm going to Denver for a reason. However, um, kind of want, want to know a little bit more about how you operate, because what I saw was I could take what I learned in the Bureau about investigating securities fraud, do it on my own as a freelance, and then put this report together, an unbiased report. And let's say it's a 28-page report about company XYZ, and they're bad. I go do all my you know, expenses, whatever. I'll sell you, Tony Algindi, or any other short seller. That way I don't hand handcuff myself to just one short seller. Here's a bad report on the company. I did the investigation. I'm going to sell you this report for $10,000, $5,000, whatever. Put a price on it. They could take and do whatever they want. They want to verify that information. They want to use it and say, hey, a former FBI securities fraud investigator put this report together, put it on his website. To me, it gets the best of both worlds. I don't need to be sitting in his office. Whether I sold that to Tony, I knew some other bigger short sellers as far as volume. Um, at least I had that option. The other half was I was going to use my fugitive background to, to search for missing kids. And that was going to be my pleasure, uh, you know, the, the passion, whatever, of, on the good side without getting paid and let my securities fraud work do that. That was why I was going to be a, a PI, had it all set up. I went out and stayed with Tony for about three or four months. Um, <laughs> we, uh, we talked a little bit about Scott Helveston. Um, I thought he would have been a great witness. He worked with us. He ran security for Tony as a former SEAL and and um, unfortunately was, was killed in Fallujah in 2004, the day before my trial. Um, he... So that the only witness we could have had that had he had street cred, he could have said, "Hey, you know, somebody would have had to say, all right, you know, you know, he's lying. He's sitting on the stand lying. I don't think former SEAL's going to be lying, and he knew exactly what we were doing. He worked with us. Um, that didn't materialize. So I I moved back to Denver in May, head out in May, and arrested. Like I said, well, headed to Denver and then arrested in Albuquerque. Anyway, so I never did actually work for Tony. He offered me the job, but I never took it. Which be, which comes important in trial because right. that that's the really one of the big convictions mm -hmm. there, right? Um, so one of the things that is really interesting and was a gray area. And again, I, I poured through all this information, and and one of the things I, I found interesting is, you know, I can see where some people would say, well, why would you get involved with somebody like that, especially mm -hmm. getting out of the bureau, especially when these things are going on, right? Looks a little dirty, looks a little whatever. But on the same token, if this is a guy that's the best of the best, which even in in his, if you Google him, they said this guy is really good at what he does. Right. So it made some sense there, right? Mm -hmm. If you would have made millions of dollars and they found <laughs> it, I'd have been like, yeah, we're not even having this conversation today. It, it, I always go back and say, okay, if I was going to commit this crime, A, I get, 
a whole different computer system set up so I don't get checked. Uh, I would have actually made a dollar. Yeah. I mean, I didn't make a dollar. Uh, so I would have been either the stupidest criminal in the world or just independently wealthy, so I didn't need the money. There's a lot of ways, and then I just I just laugh about it because I said all that would have had to happen, you know, secret bank accounts to move money around so it couldn't have been traced. All that stuff would have had to happen. Well, and you're an FBI agent. You would have you would have knowledge of how to do something of right. this nature. And it, and if you look at all the stuff, and there's there's a lot of stuff out there, and and some of them really paint it bad, right? Mm -hmm. That's that journalism that you see. But when you really dig into the facts of the case. It, they list all the things that they thought were done and traded or whatever, and it was there was either a net loss or there was nothing. Right. So that that just stinks to high heaven to me. I'm like, wait a minute, it, this is way too crazy because it's almost like there's two parallel cases. There's a case of this guy's working this security fraud with this guy that that might be kind of on the gray mm -hmm. side of life. Then 9/11 happens, and it turns into this madness that doesn't even make sense right. and that's why i asked earlier if 9-11 doesn't happen doesn't happen your whole because, life has changed because those before we went to trial those charges were dropped the fbi to their one credit came down and said seriously there's nobody in the bureau that there's nothing that shows jeff had any prior knowledge and there's nothing that even says tony algindi has any prior knowledge nothing at all so that was it that was dead in the water even all the people that they brought to testify against him, uh, against us. So then they re-indicted, superseded indictment three different times um, to make it appear about securities. And then they stacked the charges, made them individual charges, and brought them in as uh, RICO charges, racketeering. Which is racketeering, yeah. So they could get more teeth in the sentencing. So instead of being a five-month sentence, you know, they've got the crime of the century, and ooh, we've, we've said all this bad stuff, let's charge it under RICO, indict his website at the same time as a website, as a criminal enterprise and then we can get more more teeth in the, in the sentencing and that's what they did of even which i went through all about jindy stuff and i didn't see where this guy was overly crazy about anything no. again it just didn't make any sense at all when i got this story i'm like man i want to run this story because it, it is it is fascinating to me so you get this you there's there's a couple things that that now come into play when you go into the trial you could have got a lesser sentence they offered me a three-year plea everybody else was getting probation the crime of the century got probation for their people, yeah. And they offered me a three-year plea. But it put me in a, a really an unwinnable situation, really, because they said, all right, I said, well, what, what about the plea? You know, three years, we tried, you know, probation. But they said, here's the deal. The lady didn't have to testify against me. The other guy in the case didn't have to testify against me as part of most plea. You know, if you, if you give somebody the sweetheart deal, Wrapped up in that is usually the obligation to testify against the main suspect. They didn't know anything, so they couldn't testify. Uh, <laughs> they said, "Well, you're going to have to tell that Tony or said uh, tell the jury that Tony Algindi did all this." I said, "Well, he didn't do all that. So now you're going to put me on the stand to perjure myself. So you're going to you're going to give me a sweetheart deal, but I have to lie about what happened." And they were still, under the, again, one set of facts, two different stories. They're still going with their story. So I said, I can't do that. So I'm screwed either way at that point in time because I'm either going to get the six-year sentence or I'll take the deal and have to lie and perjure myself against Tony. Not fair to him, obviously. That's stupid. I would never do that. They end up giving him 11 years anyway. But, yeah, I was... Well, in, in some of these uh, uh, case papers that I read, I mean, sometimes this was carrying a sentence up to 40 years. Yeah, they they... 
sometimes they do that for, um, especially in the RICO statutes, and they'll, whether they're run concurrent or consecutive, so they could have found guilty on the RICO and the underlying charges, and then they, if they run them concurrent uh, or consecutive, then it would stretch out to that much. They never do that. And, and, well, and again, it's that sensational journalism, right? So well, it's part of the scare tactic. Right. If the you know if my mom reads it and she says, "Oh my God, honey, you could go to jail for forty years." I said, "Mom, they don't do that." But that's what they said. That's part of the scare. Oh, take that plea, because you could go to jail for forty years. Well, I knew better. We don't ever do that. So that was. So what did they ultimately indict you on? It was uh, it was racketeering, and then it was the three underlying charges. They have a um, securities fraud obstruction of justice and witness tampering. Okay. And so the racketeering, what, what was that about? Well, okay. The racketeering Rico statutes were put in to fight the mob. So when we, we can don't just take down, cut the head off the snake and the mob, we can take their entire organization down. That's why they were put in when they were put in. Well, they kind of started morphing that out. And so they, they put, they charged with that for this current, uh, charged that because of the criminal enterprise, and they, so they said, because Tony had 300 people on his website and there was me and there was Tony and there was Derek, and you know, this is an enterprise. I'm like, okay, you're going to compare this to a, a mafia investigation? But because the statutes read the way they read, that's what they did. So then the U.S. attorney could go back out and say, we got a racketeering code. And it was in the papers. I'm like, oh, and they both, both prosecutors jumped ship and went to this private good job that they have been promised because that was their career job and they got these half million dollar jobs afterwards because by God they had found somebody who who knew about the funding of 9-11. They're still pushing that narrative even though it was taken out of the indictment and the judge said no it won't ever be brought up in the case stick to the security stuff. They still brought that up after the fact. And what was the securities fraud? That I was given like insider trading. So I was giving Tony confidential information off of. And think about how this worked. There's a computer check. There's a phone call. There's money being made or lost between Tony and his website. And then the phone calls between me and Tony. One set of facts. Those are all facts. And we stipulated that in the beginning. But if, as I mentioned before, the, the computer check was to find a bad company or Tony had given me that company, there's the phone call. It says, look at this. So there's three ways. That, there's telephone calls and there's computer checks. And then there's the trading. I'm checking the computer to put this package together to get the other agents to work it. So there's, hey, Tony, here's what I need. I need the CEO. I need the CFO. I'm back and forth, back and forth, putting this package together. So, yes, there are the telephone calls and there are the computer checks on my password encrypted computer. Right. They said I was checking the computer intentionally to give to Tony for the sole intent of short-selling that company. I checked the computer. I tell Tony, hey, the FBI's got a, a, an agent working down in Boca Raton on XYZ. You better short it. That's their story. My story was that didn't happen. And I thought what proved that on my side, A, that Derek said there was no bribery, but I didn't make a single penny. Again, if I'm doing that for the sole purpose of Tony, don't you think he's kicking me back some money? Yeah. Don't you think I wouldn't have maybe had, not had to file for bankruptcy that year or whatever? You know, there's just things that, that would have been a little bit smarter. Well, and they're watching your finances all the time anyway. We're getting, we are financially audited every year in the FBI. Yeah. Stupid to even think that. It's my dream job. I'm wearing the white hat. Again, I would like to a supervisor. I'm, I'm perfectly okay living my life with a personality that somebody can knock me down 
but help me back up, dust me off and point me in the right direction. I'm good with that. Better than being passive aggressive or whatever. Don't let me work this guy for two years and let me do what I'm doing. Consider me a rock star for some of the things that I'm doing and then throw me in prison. Yeah, throw you in that's, the just, that's just dirty. So what, what about the obstruction of justice? What was that one for? The, the, <laughs> the computer checks that, that she did, the agent that I was dating, she was checking. Once she found out, she it's just the word. And she's like, oh, my God, this guy that I'm dating is in, under investigation now. So she was checking the computer. Again, those we never denied those. They were saying that she then was passing that information. Well, I was talking to her. She's my girlfriend. So there's telephone calls. Well, during these telephone calls, they didn't have us wiretapped at that time or, or surveillance. She must have told you that you were under investigation. So there's an obstruction charge. I said, okay, what did I do? Did I hide all my money? Did I flee the country? You have to do something overt in order for the obstruction. Nope. Just by her checking the computer. Again, I didn't have to accept the job from Tony Elgindi to get that charge. He just had to offer it to me. All she had to do was check the computer. There's the obstruction charge. She didn't even have to tell me, which she didn't. So, again, <laughs> I didn't realize how jacked up the statutes were at that point in time. Now I do. But and that's actually in these court documents. I mean, I've read all mm -hmm. these court documents. Everything that you said is, is exactly the way it is in these court documents. Right. That's the thing that is just... I have no reason to lie. I've, it's 20 years after the fact. You're done, I'm, yeah. I'm, I've got no reason. I mean, there's there's a rightness and a wrongness, a fairness to it. Um, I've put in for my presidential pardon. I've, I've done all this stuff. But there's there's things that are supposed to let you do your time for your crime. Well, we're going to get to that. So you get you get in you get a sentence of six years, right? And and they send you to California, right? Good old Lompoc. But you had also one of the things I think is really interesting to bring up. Not only did you get a six year sentence, but you were under house arrest for four years that didn't right. count against your sentence. Right. That, um, we were trying to get our cases separated. I was arrested in May of two thousand two. I could have went to trial in November of that year. Um, <laughs> We were paralleling it with Martha Stewart's case. She was in the same courtroom, same, not same magistrate, but the same courtroom, same time frame. So she'd come in, we'd go in, whatever, we'd pass. She was, her entire case was done in five months. Entire case, from arrest to sentencing, done in five months. I'm not even started. Ironically, for insider trading. Right. Of which she went to a, she a, five a, a hotel to, yeah. <laughs> for a, five months. A camp, right. So, <laughs> and making probably millions in the deal. Right. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Martha, you made nothing. Not a penny. You knew a guy that happened to be Middle Eastern and 9-11 hits, and you now spend six years of your life in prison. Right. And that was, uh, again, in the federal system, the only system that you don't get time for your uh, house arrest. So if those four years would have even been counted. I mean, four years, that's a long time. I love my parents, and they love me, but they're ready to kick me out. But, again, they put up you know $450,000 in bail. They leverage their house, their cars, they leverage everything to, to include my grandma. It was just is nuts. I mean, some people. I was in with a guy who ran over and killed somebody, manslaughter. He was out in two years. So it, it was just there was a lot of things that went on. That I was like, this nothing makes sense. But um, it's a thirteen year period total. You know those. My kids were four, five, six years old, time frame when it started. Those are formidable times. Mm -hmm. And I saw them twice while I was in, in prison, those six years, two times. Saw my parents once. Um, Which had to be just tough on all of them. Yeah, just it, you don't know until you're there. 
Yeah. You know, you're, you can't have that conversation without crying. You can't explain to your kids enough why dad's innocent. And I mean, to this day, my kids are 25 and this question is always, dad, can I trust the government? So A, that sucks that you have to even have that conversation, but I, I got to be honest with you. No, you can trust the people that you're with, the, 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 your partner, the gun in your foxhole. You can trust those people, but don't you ever trust the government. And I hate saying that because that's not the way we're supposed to be. But after the, and now, the stuff that's happening now, 20 years later, it's not so hard for them to understand. I said, put this, today's world, into to, to back then. I said, does it make a little bit more sense? And they said, absolutely. Have you have you Googled yourself and read all the stuff I that's did. out there? I did. Um, the only thing I haven't done, um, A&E did an interview with me while I was in prison, two-day deal. Um, they put it on American Greed. It's the biggest hatchet job. I have two days of interview, and they put 20 seconds worth of something the warden even told me. She said, Jeff, you're going to get screwed over this thing. And I said, well, I want to get my story out. I want to tell what I didn't get to tell. No, it was ugly. So if you watch that, it was bad news. And it was all pure pro-government. And I said, that's it. So until just recently and this, I haven't really even told my story. Um, and it and is one hell of a fascinating story. And, and uh, you know, at Truth Talks, we try and do as much investigative work as we can, kind of see what's in there. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I believe you. There's one other thing I want to touch on prison, though. Um, there's a book. Why don't you tell me about this book? Because that was a fascinating piece of story. It, the bigger picture is my faith. Um, Tony got out of prison, killed himself. Don't know the details, don't know anything else, but he spent 11 years in, but he lost his family and his, you know, his kids, his wife. Government's famous for destroying people's families, and they did it here too. And so he got out, couldn't handle it. Tony had some medical issues, I think, um, killed himself. In the very beginning, you know, when you're in solitary, they threw me into solitary for, uh, I think the first time was 23 days. Anything past 30 days is called, <laughs> considered cruel and unusual. Right. And in the New York, so I was, you know, the Jeffrey Epstein thing school, so where he ended up killing himself, supposedly, um, was a couple doors down from where I stayed. And oh. so I had the, the terrorists, the 12 terrorists that they arrested were, a few doors down started, so they were doing their whole praying thing all night long. And then uh, Jimmy the Bull, or, um, I'm sorry, Sammy the Bull, uh, Gravano, his son, who were in the big ecstasy ring, he was right next to me. And then Peter Gotti, uh, John Gotti's brother, was on this side of me. So when we get out of our solitary units for an hour a day out into our little cage, a little 8 by 12 cage or whatever it was to do our sunshine for the day, I had his son over here and Peter Gotti over here. And well, Sammy the Bull was the one. We had him out at the FBI Academy, actually, as a witness protection so he could testify. That guy killed how many people? And he got, what, five years, six years? <laughs> Shit. So his son was just a loud-mouthed, cocky kid. And Gotti, I, he, so he, his dad testified against John Gotti, his brother, and now probably going to testify against Peter, too. So he kept saying, oh, yeah. And now they knew I was the FBI. The, the guards came by and gave everybody the daily paper and said, hey, this FBI, again, the crooked guard thing. So all night long, I hear, hey, FBI boy, hey, FBI, we're going to kill you. We're going to kill you, FBI boy. All, day, all night, every night from everybody. But when we went out there, then and Peter Gotti just sat there all day, right? And why this Sammy the Bull's son is just 
poking. So entertaining, but surreal in that fact. And now that after seeing what happens to Epstein and know what can't go on in there, I mean, it makes it laughable that, oh, he killed himself. Yeah. Didn't, no cameras. Yes. Those guys checked up our butt for every 15 minutes. So anyway, back to my faith, I had said that prayer. Don't let me be this because I know what's going to happen. I, because of my law enforcement background, they're going to put me in a lot of solitary. And I was a lot of places in solitary for a long time. I can't lose it mentally. Um, you know, I cried myself to sleep in the first couple of days, and I said, that's enough of that. So now you've hit bottom, let's bounce up. A guy that was driving a book cart came by, trustee, people that they just let them come, and he knocked and said, book, you want a book, whatever. I said, just throw one under the door. I tossed one, I went and picked it up. It was a, it's called Beyond Survival from a Navy captain, uh, Gerald Coffey, who was a Vietnam POW. And in it, and it was right after I had said that prayer, and so I know it was a God thing. And it was almost a, I read that and devoured it. I memorized most of it in those 23 days. It was an easy read, but it was basically, whenever you're in times of crisis, you have to, to take your, the negative uh, time period in manageable chunks of time. So you don't live for six years later when you're going to get out. You live till tomorrow. You live till Friday night, and in prison, it was that way. It was um, Friday night was movie night, so I, you stay alive till Friday night, and then you get to have your diet coke and your nachos, and watch the movie, and then you live to Monday, and then you live to the next kid's birthday, or the, you know you put yourself in manageable chunks of time. A lot of people try and sleep through prison. I programmed it. You know, you're up at six o'clock in the morning, you're working, then you're out in the yard at the weight pile. You're uh, in the chapel, I was in the chapel two hours every single day. I taught Bible study, taught business, uh, Bible business classes. I, I helped people prepare for their business out when they got out. I just, I did a lot of things to pass my time and try and still what little, you know, get away from the, the uh, heartache I felt the, of the government, try not to let that eat me up. Still maintain some sort of white hat deal, but that, uh, that book really, really helped. And I, I need to, to reach out to, I know he's still alive, Gerald Coffey, and I just like to say, hey, what you did, you don't even know who the heck I am, but just your words kept me. Once we found out that part of the story, we were like, we're going to get him on the show, because that, what a great, I mean, that's a great thing, and I know your faith carried you through a lot of that, which, you know, we, a lot of our cases, or a lot of our stories end up being faith-based, because, man, once you hit rock bottom, there's kind of only one way up from there. Mm -hmm. Uh, it, it becomes, it certainly becomes one of those things that it allows a person to get to that next level of life. Um, once you get out, now there's a happy ending to the story. <laughs> happy ending. Um, <laughs> I was at the halfway house, another big racket, government racket, but I was, um, my former wife had been remarried and her and her husband are, are there in Denver at a Starbucks. And I got out of the halfway house and I needed to go look for a job. And I called her and said, um, can you pick me up at the bus stop? Because I'd like to go see the kids. I need to go start looking for a job. And it's like two or three days, four days, something out of the halfway house. They gave us tokens and we got to, to, to go up. And as soon as we found a job, they let us out on the bracelet. So I called her, and I, when I got to the bus stop, said, I am here. And she said, well, I can't come get you. Um, we're Starbucks chilling. I'm going to send Dina. And I said, who's Dina? And 
turns out our kids have been besties forever and ever. I, I didn't know anybody. And she goes, oh, you'll know Dina. Um, so 10 minutes later, comes this little black sports car, and I knew Dina. She is a little smoking. I call her my little uh, Italian spicy combo. She's, I, I looked in, and I had, in prison, I had put together a little a thing about two years before I got out. I said, Lord, I've, I've, I've really messed up a lot of people's lives. I, I don't need a spouse. I don't need anybody else. But, you know, however, if I were, here's, here's who I am now. Here's who I need as a strong partner. Um, here's what I would like. And it was three pages, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Here's what I need to, now that I understand who I am. And if not, then please don't put me in anybody's life because I don't want to mess up anybody else's life. So she drove up, she pulled over, and she, I looked down, and looking down, <laughs> and you know, smoking hot, right? And I looked up at the sky, and I said, seriously, that soon? <laughs> <laughs> Already. <laughs> Already. So three or four weeks later, we kept started talking. She was dating some guy at the time, but didn't really think about it. I was just appreciative of that. And she, I think what got me most is when I got into the car, there was no judgment. There was no anything. She just gave me a hug and said, welcome. So. After going through all that, that meant, <laughs> no, that meant a lot. Because nobody else had taken that chance to, to get to know me. And the second chance I needed, she gave it to me right off the, right off the bat. And you're married now. Yeah, so we dated for a couple years, three years, and and it was interesting. Even on the proposal, I said, nobody's given me that second chance. Even people that I knew had uh, just kind of said, well, you must have done something because the government indicted you. She never had that. And so that kind of started off obviously on a, on a good note. So we got married a few years later, and, and she said, uh, there's been times in my life where I needed that second chance too. It worked, happily married. She's got, turns out her son and my son were best friends in high school and junior high, which at the times that I missed, so I didn't know that. I didn't get to see them interact. And, and uh, it's just, it's worked very well. God works in mysterious ways. He does. He mysterious does. ways. So I went back to that sheath that I put together, and I was like, check, 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 yep. <laughs> just because you're a big guy and you got all emotional, I don't think you're weak because you got <laughs> me all emotional too at the same time. But So I got to ask a question. Um, are you mad? I was for a while, honestly. Um, again, back to the faith thing. Um, when Christ was crucified, he said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. And he was serious. And until I actually forgave the government, because truly they know not what they do. I don't care if they're trying to do it to get a new job position, if they're doing it because they're stupid. I, it doesn't really matter. They just I, they got it wrong. And I know they got it wrong, but what was I to do about it? So I could either live bitter the rest of my life, possibly even come out like Tony did and, and feel like suicide or, you know, commit suicide or just do something and just every single day wake up and cuss. And, uh, that's just not who I am. I can honestly look in the mirror every single day and I'm wearing a white hat. If somebody needs help across the street, somebody needs a tire change, somebody needs some money, somebody needs something, I'm there. Just give me a shout. I'm good. And I can sleep well at night. Um, I'm perfectly good with what I did. I can go back and honestly say that had I had it to do all over again, I would do it again. I, I wouldn't change anything. I might do some more paperwork or, or make sure somebody was there. But it, it, the people who I thought would even testify for me didn't, and they told me that, sorry. You know, 
and and I'm perfectly good with what I did, so I, I can't be bitter about it. I'm a better person because of it. Um, I have a, a great life. I have great kids. I'm healthy. Um, my family's still healthy, and they helped me through it. it. It was, you can't see it in the midst of your struggles, but if you can get to the other side, yeah, you can look back and see the, the hand of God, the protection. You can see the what maybe what he was planning for you. And, and with that then, if you believe that happens, then you can look forward to what's going to happen. And then you can honestly pray, not the why me, oh poor pitiful me. You can say, if you got me through that, you must have something better for, and bigger for me to do. Bring it on. Yeah, true I'm, story. I believe I'm that. Ready, I'm ready for it. I believe that. You know, I want to I end this. Uh, uh, I believe you're innocent. There's nothing I read in there that even remotely says otherwise to me. Um, I've been through this a, a bunch of times, and, and just the the parlay of how these things happen. I have experience in trial where I know that a lot of times there's things when you're sworn to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, except for you can't mention these things mm. during the trial. <laughs> uh, I have experience with yeah. that. And um, so I don't know if the whole truth ever comes out in any of that kind of stuff. But I certainly believe you're innocent. I want to ask you one more time, are you innocent of all these charges? Absolutely. And I know that you are looking for a presidential pardon. I put in my papers. Um, <laughs> I don't care how it gets there. I talked to, to General Flynn's attorney, Sidney Powell. Um, she said she's not taking any new cases. And it's just, you know, somebody has a presidency or somebody just says, hey, th- th- there's a fairness that I thought was built into the system. And back to doing the time for the crime, why do I lose my vote? Why do I lose two constitutional rights? It's a white-collar crime. I, don't, I can't uh, bear arms, and I can't vote. Why do I lose two constitutional rights for the rest of my life? It's not that way in any state system or anything else. Uh, they talk about prison reform. Well, how about just judicial reform where you can give people a second chance? They like to preach second chances, so, so, so make it happen. So the sentences and everything else, it's a, it's a, I mean, it's a racket. This prison system is a multi-billion dollar industry, so you're never going to see it go away. There's too much money to be made for the government in the prison system. But there can be some fairness. There can be a time period where you can apply or you can do something to say, hey, it's a white-collar, nonviolent crime. Let's keep the people in prison who are rapists, murderers, arsonists, some people who, when they go back out, they're going to do nothing but commit crime and hurt people, physically hurt people. But the low-level drug dealers, the white-collar crime, let's, let's take those people who may have just made a mistake or maybe it's the wrong place at the right time and give them that second chance. And if that's the case, that's what my pardon was based on, is just said, hey, can enough be enough? Can I go hunt with my kids? Can I protect my family? Can I own a gun so I can protect my family? And especially in the world that's kind of crazy right now, can I go vote in a world that needs my vote for hopefully good? And that's, I mean, that's how I get that, who I get that. If my, if the paperwork goes through, if there's another avenue, I don't know. Um, well, you know, we, we've got a pretty good reach. We've got a lot of people who uh, tune in and listen to the show. We, we always know that you're only a, a one degree of separation <laughs> from, from someone, right? right? And I, and I think you deserve that. Um, it, it is, it's mind blowing to me after digging into the case as deep as I did, um, I, I, they're certainly the least that can happen now is you get back your rights. I would like that. If, if not, they can't take, give me back my time. They can't give me back my kids' time. But there can be a fairness. There can be a enough's enough. Go back and go ahead and you, you've done your time. 
we're not going to punish you for the rest of your life. I agree 100%. I tell you what, I appreciate this more than you know. <laughs> I uh, appreciate the opportunity. You're, you're an incredible human being. And uh, what, yeah, when I when I saw the story, I'm like, I've got to run this because there's, there's some significant injustice that goes on in around the world. And I believe you, man. Thank you. You bet. Very much. Thank you so much.